Amen. Thanks, Amy and Cindy, too, and all the musicians this morning. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I know that probably a lot of you recognize that my wife is one of those heading on the India mission team and actually kind of leading the team. So she's been doing a lot of planning and praying and working for that. And I'm guessing for an awful lot of you that raises the concern. Um, so you can check my Facebook page for the updated link to provide a meal to Doug.com. That way, your anxieties can be alleviated. <laughs> Paul is writing this letter to encourage and fortify the faith of believers at a church that he and his fellow missionaries, Timothy and Silas, planted. So that's why we have 1 Thessalonians. But if you remember from the book of Acts in our previous study, Paul had been forced out prematurely by persecution. And uh, sometimes the brave thing is to stay, but sometimes the wise and strategic thing for a missionary like Paul to do is to leave and to come back another time. And that is definitely what Paul has wanted to do. He has, as we've been so far in this letter, has needed to address, though, this abrupt departure. It looked like he bailed. And so in the early part of the chapter, he started to explain why it is, what motivates him when it comes to ministry. And in this part of 1 Thessalonians, beginning in verse 17, we have in what is many ways Paul at his most personal in all his letters. He really shows us his heart. And so I've studied this passage before. When I knew I would be preaching, I knew that major themes would be the heart of a minister, what causes anxiety for a pastor, what causes great joy. I knew that was going to be part of it. But there was something else that surprised me, even though I studied it before. And that is, in this section... Paul also tells us a lot about what faith really is. It doesn't seem like a very theological section. In fact, when I was in Greek class in, uh, at Cedarville and I was assigned this passage, I'm like, oh, there's not very much going here. Paul's just, you know, kind of autobiography. But now I see how foolish that was. There is a lot here and just below the surface about what faith really is. And let me give you a preview. In Paul's thinking in the Bible, a profession of faith in God is simultaneously a pledge to be faithful to God. Faith and faithfulness are inseparable in Paul's mind when he thinks about a person turning to God both. And I think we'll see that as we go. And so we begin in verse 17. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, it's the language for being orphaned, 
being bereft of someone, when we were torn away because of the persecution and we prematurely had to leave, that's what the separation felt like. Paul is not some robotic minister just phoning it in. He really cares about these people. He cares about how they're doing spiritually. He really loves them in the Lord. And this forced departure really has caused him anxiety. It feels like a tearing away. He said, we were separated from you in person, not in thought, literally, in face, but not in heart. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. There again, that intense longing language. It's like, Paul, what difference? You did your thing. You passed out your materials. They know the content now. It's kind of up to them. That is not how Paul views this at all for reasons that we'll hopefully increasingly see. For we wanted to come to you, verse 18, certainly I, Paul, did again and again. So what's stopping you? But Satan blocked our way. Satan hindered us. This is just a side note, but I think it's an important one. Paul's view of spiritual warfare is a little deeper than how you sometimes encounter it today. For some people, if a group of people head to a, a geographic space or a building, march around it prayerfully, Satan's done. He can't do a thing. That's strange to me in light of, here's an apostle wanting to get back to Thessalonica to do ministry, and he can't get there. Why? Satan hindered us. I would suggest that that teaches us that spiritual warfare is a little bit more complex than sometimes we might say. But then he says in verse 19, and here he tells what the heart of ministry is all about. What an apostle or a pastor or someone in ministry to others, this is what we care about. What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? What will we point to? Not programs primarily, not facilities, not numbers in and of themselves. Is it not you? If God has used us to really bring you to true and saving, life-transforming faith that leads you from now on not to live for sin and self, but for the glory of God and the good of others and for the purposes of his kingdom, you're going to be the reason for glory and joy when Jesus comes back. You're the crown. So, verse 1 of chapter 3, and just a reminder that the verse divisions again were added later. Paul, as he wrote, didn't write 3, colon 1, and then keep going. So, when we could stand it no longer, again, boy, you feel the heart of him. He's really agitated about this. He doesn't take a view of ministry, of conversion, of church planning, that we kind of did the process and so we're done. He doesn't know whether faith has really taken. And he says, 
I just can't stand it. You know, again, some views of ministry in the Christian life is if you have faith, you just kind of stride serenely through life all the time. Doesn't seem to be that way for Paul. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. Paul normally ministered as a team, and he much preferred that, and I'm sure I know the reasons why. But again, as he does ministry, it's not mainly about him. And so strategically, all right, the rest of you go. I'll stay back here in Athens. We sent Timothy, who was our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in what? Your faith. Now, that's the first time the word's going to appear, but it's going to really dominate this passage. So that no one would be unsettled, shaken by these trials. For you know quite well that we're destined for them. Paul wasn't there all that long with them, but he was long enough there to teach them that he included, when you're a real Christian living faithfully, you're going to experience trial. That came on pretty early in his catechizing. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. <laughs> Paul says, and that's just what happened. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, verse 5, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your attendance. No. I sent to find out about your faith. And then he says something that, again, a lot of us, our theology wouldn't even let us go there. I was afraid. Well, what? Paul, you're anxious, you're agitated, and you're afraid? Yep. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors, all our work at preaching the gospel to you to bring you back to God and allegiance to God might have proved in vain. What is going on here? What is Paul so deeply concerned and troubled about? The answer we've already been seeing is in verses 2, 5, 6, and 10. He is desperate to find out about the current condition of their faith. And realizing that that was his anxiety reminded me, got me to start thinking, Paul's view of faith is really in some substantial ways, I think, different than the view of faith that prevails today. Because today, for many, faith, saving faith or believing is such a mild, sometimes almost imperceptible event in a person's biography, a person's life, a matter of believing certain facts about how the atonement works. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Now you can go to heaven instead of hell. Would you like for that to happen? Yes, I would. Please say back these words that I'm going to provide for you to pray to God. You say the words back. Now you're in. Write it down. Mark it down. If you're ever tempted to doubt, show the devil your card. Now, I'm thankful that God can and does save by real faith in moments of decision and gestures of decision like that. 
but it's only if faith is really present. And then, after that, well, who knows? Who can tell, really? Because in this view of things, you're kind of done with the main thing. Sure, it would be great if more stuff followed, but that's all kind of secondary and optional. I mean, good works and living the Christian life and serving, those are all great and all and highly recommended, but if that doesn't happen, well, the point is the really big thing did happen. You put your faith in Jesus. Apparently, it's all very different from what faith is for Paul as he thinks about how things are going with the Thessalonians. For Paul, he needs to know Are they proving faithful in the way that they're now living? And as I thought about this more, there was another line of evidence that it was on the right track. Because in the Greek, and very rarely do I resort to in the Greek, but this is a time where I think it matters and is important. Think of Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, gentleness, what? What? Faithfulness. It's the Greek word pistos. Do you know whenever it says you're saved by faith in the Bible, what the word is? When it says we're justified by alone, what the word is? It's pistos. For Paul and the New Testament writers, when they wrote pistos, They meant faith, and they meant faithfulness simultaneously. We can't let our English word definitions work backward and diminish what Paul's word in the Greek meant. It's got to go the other way. Every time from now on, when you read faith in your New Testament, realize that a part of it is faithfulness. In fact, when Paul writes to the Colossians and greets them in Colossians 1 verse 2, he calls the church members saints and faithful brothers and sisters. Faithful brothers and sisters isn't a subset of the saints. That's what saints are. And so in Ephesians 1 verse 1, to the saints who are at Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus, it's built right in. For Paul, and this is an exciting, encouraging thing. Faith in God is this dynamic, life-changing thing when it's real. It empowers and leads people to stand firm, verse 8, to overcome temptation, verse 5, and to continue to trust and obey, even in the face of persecution. True faith will make a person faithful, habitually faithful to God and his word. When you profess faith in Christ, like people did last Sunday evening in the waters of baptism, they were simultaneously and necessarily promising faithfulness to Christ. We've torn asunder what God had always intended to stay together. James... He definitely agrees with this. We know faith without works is unfortunate. No. 
It's dead, barren, useless. I have a non-working faith. I have a faith that leaves my life untouched. You don't have faith. The book of Hebrews, all of chapter 11, is telling us how faith works. Again and again, Abraham gets God called by faith. Abraham obeys and goes. Faith acts faithfully. This matters. Living with a defective, shrunken down version of faith has hurt us. And part of why it matters, and part of what I want to do my own effort to reverse this morning, is if we live with this shrunken down version of faith that is only mostly just kind of agreeing with theological ideas, and it doesn't include faithfulness, that means every time we hear the word faith or use it, we're a little bit faked out. Something crucial is missing because biblical faith means faithfulness too that necessarily leads to obedience built right in, not as an optional add-on. Paul knew he could tell whether or not the Thessalonians really had believed with saving faith depending on whether or not they were living faithfully. So what then is faith? And we'll think more about this together in the uh, teaching time in the evening service tonight. How do I get it? How do I guard it? How do I grow it? That's what we'll be thinking about together tonight at six. But for now, faith is the right response of a person to God as he addresses us by his word. That's a good comprehensive way to think about faith. So as God's word comes to us as teaching, faith believes what God's word says. What's God's like? What is God like? What did the cross accomplish? What's heaven? The word of God addresses us as teaching and the person of faith believes that teaching. Now that's how I think and believe. The word of God, when it addresses us, when God addresses us in his word as promise, including the gospel promise, you can be forgiven and have an everlasting life because Jesus paid it all. When it comes to you as wonderful promise, faith responds by trusting. Trusting in the promise. And when the word of God addresses us as command and direction, faith habitually obeys. That's how it all goes. So the word of God is always addressing us in all of those ways. And then the person of faith is saying yes, yes, yes to God. Yes to your teaching, yes to your promises, thank heaven, and yes to your commands and to your direction because faith means faithfulness to God and to his word. Faith comes by hearing the message and as we'll see, that's how it is born in a person's heart and life. The truth of God's word brings you to repentance which is a change of mind. Now that I'm hearing God's word, I don't think about myself and my life and what the point of life is in those old ways. The word of God, the message of Christ is changing my mind, bringing me to repentance, and it's going to bring me to this trust and allegiance which is my habitual response to God from now on because I'm a person of faith now. That's what it means. 
What then was the source of Paul's anxiety? Why? I mean, he preached. He preached faithfully. We know that for sure. And it seemed like they had responded. He'd been there with weeks and probably even months. So what, why once he's gone, what's the problem? Again, in our systems, and our process, you have no, I know that they, I've got the cards. For this, I was reminded of Jesus' own parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8. And Jesus himself is explaining about the working of the word of God and bringing people to faith. And there are different kinds of hearers represented by the different kinds of soil. We don't have time to do the whole thing, but in Luke chapter 8, verse 13, as he's explaining the parable, he says something pretty surprising for a lot of us with our theology, which I think is ultimately right, that once a person believes, they persevere in faith. But Jesus in Luke 8, 13 talks about people who... Believe for a while, and then they don't, and then they stop. What on earth could abort fledgling faith in a person's heart and life? If a person is starting to be responsive to the teaching of God's word, fired up about it, if a person is starting to be warmed by the promise that we're forgiven as a gift alone, through grace alone, if all of that is really gaining some momentum, for us, again, it would be like, this is inevitable now. But for Jesus and for Paul, Jesus tells us what can stamp out fledgling faith. Life's worries, Riches and pleasures. Think that through sometime this Lord's day. What things agitate and get at me and swamp me so that my assurance that God is at work in my heart and life starts to flag and to fail? Or maybe for a lot, it's the riches and pleasures. There are just so many distractions. We can only give our mind and heart to so many things. And we do. And we started out fired up, and now we're fired up about a lot of stuff. And it's killing us. Faith that looked like it was there, it's not there anymore. Faith, faithfulness, devotion, allegiance. So you see how Paul and the New Testament writers really regard faith. If we really thought about faith in a person's life the way he does, wouldn't we be truly and profoundly concerned about the quality of faith in our own lives and the lives of others? And so I encourage you to ask yourself this, how is it looking for the future trajectory of faith that's faithful, because that's the only kind of faith there is, faith that obeys and serves and loves and endures, how's that trajectory going in your own heart 
in the hearts of your children, your family, and in this congregation, this 125-year-old congregation? Is it on the increase? Allegiance and devotion to God and the things of His kingdom, faithfulness to God's Word in every area. You're supposed to be faithful to God. Think of in the marriage thing, if someone said, you're supposed to be faithful to your spouse, and you're like, hmm, what ways, what areas? Uh, All of them. You're supposed to be faithful to God. I'm supposed to be faithful to what? Mm, All of them. That's just the habit of heart you're now in because the gospel has convinced you that's the way it ought to be. But the world, the flesh, and the devil are always pushing back and trying to fake you out and confuse you again. What's the trajectory of faith in your own heart and life? And so with all this at stake, when you think about faith this way, The way Paul does, no wonder you can just feel the relief and joy and reassurance in what we find next now that he's gotten the very good news about the faith condition of the Thessalonians. Verse 6, but Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought us good news. It's the only time in the New Testament where this phrase doesn't mean to evangelize someone with the gospel. The gospel's good news. That's the, he's so excited about it, he borrows that phrase to describe it. Timothy has come and evangelized us. He's brought us the good news about what? Your faith and love. He's told us, that's how it manifests itself. He's told us you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. The good news that Timothy brought, where do we have available to us? The scripture reading this morning from chapter one. That's the good news that Timothy brought. Timothy's like, Paul, they've got a faith that works. They've got a love that labors. They've got a hope that endures. They are continuing in joy in spite of a lot of persecution. Paul's like, you've become exemplary to all the people around you that we don't even have to tell, they tell, that you turn to God from your idols to serve the living and true God. Your faith, Thessalonians, is exemplary. That's the good news Timothy brought. And it was such a source of joy for Paul. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, and that kept going, we were encouraged Courage got put back in us about you because of, again, not how busy you are, because of your faith. For now we really live. Since you are standing firm in the Lord, faith, we just read, now faithfulness, standing firm in the Lord, How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again. That's still on his heart. And supply what is lacking, where? In your faith. Paul, 
You've already settled it. They've got it. So, no. That's not what faith is to Paul. It's something that you have a measure of that leads you to faithfulness and devotion to God and deep confidence in his love for you that transforms you. And it's expressing itself in faithfulness in different sphere of your life. But you've just started. There's a lot more ways that it can get stronger and wiser and more active and lived out. So Paul prays, I'm so thankful you have faith. And the first opportunity I get, I'm going to come back so that you can have more and better and wiser. And so this morning, just some questions of application. And the first one you can't avoid. Do you have this kind of faith? The only kind that's really faith, the only kind that really saves, the only kind that really transforms. Do you have faithful to God and His Word faith? Second, what about the people you care about? What about your children or the people you minister to? What worries you about them? What's your anxiety? Success in this area or that area or that area, understandable, but is the chief thing that sometimes I can't stand it any longer is whether or not they are characterized by faithful faith. And third, what are you deliberately and habitually doing to grow and to guard your faith and faithfulness. Again, it's the theme for tonight. This morning, as I came, and this was a surprise to me, as I'm sure it was a surprise to uh, all who heard the news, and we don't always share this news from the pulpit because you can't always remember to do it and include anyone, but it was just kind of so striking. Anyway, we got the word that one of our senior saints and longtime members of the church, Jack Roost, surprisingly, went to be with the Lord last night. And uh, so we want to be praying for Carol and for the extended family. But as soon as I thought about that, just a few minutes later, it's like, wow, he was just in prayer meeting last Wednesday. And in prayer meeting and in Bible study, right at the end, he raised his hand and he had a comment. And that comment really clarified something that I had said about how it is that we get to be right with God, and it really corrected. I mean, it was a little bit off. I was sort of sharing a quote, but I hadn't reviewed. Anyway, and he was right. And I thought, that's great. Here he is, still paying close attention after all these years to God's Word and wanting to get it right. And I thought about Jack when it came to Wednesday night. Wednesday night after Wednesday night, helping in the kitchen, helping clean up. Wednesday night after Wednesday night, coming to hear the Word of God. Wednesday night after Wednesday night, praying with the people of God. And it occurred to me, with my mind on faithfulness, that faithfulness often shows itself in the simplest and most ordinary but kingdom-important, crucial kinds of ways. 
And I couldn't help but think, too, what are people of faith aspiring to hear when they go to the Lord's presence? Good job. Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter in to your master's joy. Father in heaven, I pray that we will always be open to the word of God, deepening, clarifying, and even correcting things we've believed. And I pray that you'll help each person wrestle with what it really means to have faith. If there are some here this morning still apart from Christ, that they would talk to one of the pastors, to one of us, to one of the, a Christian friend who can, with an open Bible, help them to understand what it means to really and truly believe. And help us as your people, individual Christian families, congregation, to care about faith and faithfulness that grow. In Christ's name,